just, you know, anecdotally, you just, you meet so many people like, well, I'll take care of that part of my life. I need to live, you know, I just want to see what the world has to offer. I've heard this so many times. And when that time comes, then I will turn to the Lord or I will reconcile with God or any. But, you know, it's just right there. If your heart is seared, will you even desire to turn to God at some point? Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Sermon Extra. Great to have you with us once again this week. I'm here with Pastor Nick Cady, pastor of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado. And we are in our series, Quip to Serve. And it's uh, Paul's letters to Timothy. And then eventually we're going to get to Titus as well. And and um, just a great time. We're at this week, we were in chapter 3 and then on through to chapter 4, verse 5. And so if you missed any of that, um, the sermon was called Church of the Living God. You can find it on our website, whitefieldschurch.com. And we do have a new app and which makes things a lot easier to move around. So um, hopefully we'll maybe put that in the link in the in the in the in the comments below and you will be able to you know log into that and connect with that and that might make things easier for you to to actually watch online through the app the sermon um and also the archives and be able to search through the archives and all those kind of things as well as we start to update and put those archives in to the servers uh but whitefieldschurch.com and of course youtube facebook any of your favorite streaming platforms and uh, um, podcast platforms, you'll find the sermon there. And of course, you know, please interact with with it. You know, like, subscribe, um, leave a leave a comment, or even you know, rate and review. Certainly helps. Uh, you know, boost us up in in the algorithm ratings when people are asking questions about. You know, what is the church of God? What is the purpose of the church? Or any of these kind of things, uh, when they're typing that into their search engine, that, you know, we will pop up and and we'll be able to provide them with Christ-centered and gospel-centered answers to their questions. But this week we are, we're just going to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, you know, we, we did end up, um, you know, finishing out chapter 3. And uh, we looked at that, and just the, which of course I think are uh, I think extremely important verses. Those verses fourteen and fifteen kind of are the, you know, the whole window. Yeah, know? they're the summary of why this book exists mm-hmm. and what Paul hopes to accomplish through it. Yeah, and so those mm-hmm. were extremely important. And uh, the, this week we were kind of a, you didn't really have time on Sunday, but to kind of really dive down deep into the the first four verses of chapter four. And kind of look at some of these things that he, you know, he pivots towards. And, uh, you know, some kind of stern warnings as he's, you know, writing to Timothy, who, of course, is a young pastor, you know, seems to be in a, in a somewhat difficult situation maybe of dealing with people that are not necessarily uh, into his leadership as a pastor maybe. And, and Paul's giving him some, you know, uh, important wisdom here in these verses. So we just want to kind of talk about... You know, what is he talking about there in verse 1? You know, the later times, some will depart from the faith, voting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons and, you know, uh, throughout these things. So let's just dive into that a little bit. What is he talking about there? Yeah, and so we did talk about these verses on Sunday, but kind of in broader strokes, focusing mostly on verse 3, but a little bit on verses 1 and 2. So, yeah, I did want to go a little deeper because, you know, just not able to go into as much detail as I would have liked on Sunday. Um, 
Yeah, the big picture here, of course, is that Paul had said in chapter uh, 3, was it verses uh, 15, 16 there, where he says, the church is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so that's pretty important because Paul is saying that that's the role of the church is to be that kind of immovable thing that also holds up and protects and proclaims the gospel and the, the truth of God, of course, chief among which is the gospel, which is the problem with these false teachers that they were teaching a different gospel. And, uh, and, but Paul used some very strong words here. He says, not only are these people teaching a different gospel, but what they're teaching is actually demonically inspired. And, and this is not something new for Paul. He does it in Galatians chapter one, you know, where he says they're preaching a different gospel which in reality says there is no different gospel. What they're teaching is a false gospel. It's damnable. It's bad, right? Uh, I think sometimes we just think that uh, legalism or a false gospel is kind of uh, maybe a bad habit. And Paul says, no, it's not a bad habit. That's a damnable thing, right? To actually believe the wrong things. As we talked about earlier in First Timothy, there's the knowledge of the truth is tied to salvation. So part of being saved is understanding some basic things knowledge-wise about who God is and what Jesus has done. And so, yeah, he says these are doctrines of demons. These things are demonically inspired. And what is he talking about? Legalism. He talks in verse 3. You know, people who are forbidding um, having sex, uh, even within marriage. And this is actually something that's pretty well documented, by the way, if you go back to Christian history and even uh, what this, what we see with it is something called asceticism. It's a big influence from Greek philosophical thought. And the way that it came in was through the writings of people like Plato, for example, and this formed into a early Christian heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a way to think about it is dualism. It also formed in later on, if you just to throw out some words that maybe people have heard of, uh, Manichaeism or Manichaeism. This was actually a form of Gnosticism that um, the church father Augustine got really involved in. Actually, prior to being born again as a Christian, he got into Manichaeism, which essentially said uh, the physical is bad and the ethereal or the untangible spiritual stuff is good. And therefore, the way to be more spiritual is to deny the flesh even to the point of, you know, it got pretty severe in some cases. I mean, you you look into the, um, what are called the Desert Fathers. This is a group of uh, early Christian monks. I mean, this is from like the third century on mostly uh, where they got really into it. Like, what can we do to be more ascetic than anyone's ever been, right? And so they do weird stuff. Like there's one guy, he sat on on like a pole. Oh yeah, I remember Up in that. the air yeah. <laughs> uh, for like a really long time. Like, and he wouldn't like, eat anything. And there's another guy, I thought this one was crazy. He, uh, he refused to bathe for years to the point where it was said that bugs not only lived on him, but they actually, he was so toxic that bugs died because of being around him. <laughs> and, and, you know, the idea was that if you can be an ascetic, essentially deny your flesh to that degree, that by denying your flesh, it would increase your spirituality, your capacity for God, your capacity for understanding. And, um, you know, Paul's basically saying, hey, listen, those ideas, this Gnostic thing, this, this idea, this dualistic 
body bad, spirit good. This is not actually what the Bible teaches, right? There, It does teach. There's a difference between what we see and the spirit and there's not seen, that's true. But we remember that God created us as embodied beings. He created us male and female in the beginning. He gave us bodies and he said prior to the fall, right? It is good. And so if God declares that our physicality is part of who we are and it's a good part of who we are, then again, understand that these kind of dualistic Gnostic thinking is not, um, not from the Lord. And so the Gnostics would do a few different weird things uh, that we can read about. Like a good example of something written against Gnosticism is uh, 1 John. So what was happening in first, you know, with that John's writing against, there were kind of two ways that people went with the Gnostic thing. Because they believe the body's bad, they go two ways. One was extreme asceticism, which means that you deny your flesh. Even if you're married, you, you don't have, you know, physical relations together because that could cause you pleasure and pleasure would be bad, maybe even sinful. And so even if it's done within the bounds of marriage. And so um, the other direction that Gnostics went is that they went the exact opposite where they'd say, we can do anything we want with our bodies because essentially God doesn't care about our bodies. He only cares about our spirits. So as long as your heart is right with God, you can, you know, get drunk and do all the stuff physically that you want and you can do whatever you want with your body because your body doesn't matter. And the Bible is constantly going against both of those things. One we might call licentiousness. The other one we might call legalistic asceticism. And it's saying, no, 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 we are embodied beings. What you do with your body matters and it matters for your soul. And so, uh, yeah, Paul's saying, this, these are doctrines of demons. This is not from the Lord. And that, that's an interesting thing to think like, okay, if it's not from God, then where is, the, where is the teaching coming from? If it's not leading people to trust in Jesus, if it's leading them to trust in themselves, um, that's clearly not from God, then where is it from? Well, Paul doesn't mince words. It is demonic in origin. And like I said on, on Sunday, you know, I, I think some people, they think like Satan's main ploy in the world is like... Um, I don't know, heavy metal and cocaine, right? Like, I, and I would say, I think he's a little smarter than that. What's really crazy is that, like, if you look at the story of the prodigal son in uh, Luke chapter 15, the story, we tend to focus on the son who goes out, blows all his money, ends up eating pig slop, you know, he's with prostitutes and parties, and then he comes back and the father receives him. That's cool, but you know that that's not actually the main point of the story. The main point of the story is that the guy in the story who's actually lost, who's actually outside of the father's house at the end of the story, is not the one who sinned in really obvious big ways. It's the person who was self-righteous. And in other words, he's trusting in his own actions to give him a right standing with his father rather than trusting on the father's grace and magnanimity. And and in the end, he ends up on the outside of the house. Point being that that's the same thing we're talking about here, that Satan's biggest deception in the world is to convince people that they don't need a savior, that they're just fine on their own because they're good enough. And uh, Paul says that's demonic and, and you should call it what it is. Okay, so going on, I want to just one more comment. Later times, some, some might say the end times, um, Somebody, somebody might say, okay, Paul, is he saying that they were living in the end times? Yes, I believe that he is. Okay, if he thought he was living in the end times, that was almost 2,000 years ago. 
does that mean we are not in the end? I mean, like maybe, maybe he was wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe nobody's in the end times, right? Like, um, and I would say, well, no, no, here's how the new Testament talks about the new time, the end times. If you go over to Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit, you know, comes, uh, people are speaking in different languages. There's a flames of fire upon their heads. And then, you know, the people down below, cause they're up in an upper room, people down below in the streets are like, what's going on up there? These people are drunk. It's still the morning. What, what kind of craziness is this? And Peter says, Hey, these people are not drunk as you think, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Joel. He says that in the last days, here's what will happen. And in other words, what Peter's saying is that the last days began right there. So some mm-hmm. people place the last days beginning with Jesus' ascension into heaven, 10 days prior to Pentecost. Uh, other people would say, no, it started with Pentecost. Either way, 10 days here or there, I'm yeah. not sure, but that was the <laughs> beginning of the end. We're in the end times now. In other words, you could say that all of history had been moving forward, like racing forward towards a certain line, if you will. And then when it hit that line, it kind of like took a turn. And now we've been running parallel to that moment. The next thing to happen, of course, being the return of Jesus. That's what we wait for. So are we in the end times? Yes. Were they in the end times? Also, yes. And here are the things that characterize the end times, um, false teaching and apostasy. And I would say perhaps we could, ex- we could expect to see that all the more as we, as we get closer to that day, whenever that day is. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point to make, and it's so linked to that idea of the church being that buttress of truth, you know, the bulwark or the foundation that it's not moving. And, and you know, what we see today is that there's this push for the church to, to move to whatever the new truth is, you know, and that's kind of the deceitful spirits like, well, here's the truth here and there's truth there. And, and even within the church movements, you know, we see a lot of... Uh, you know, there's a big move right now for to, to to get into new age teaching and bring that into the church as if we're missing something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just the doctrine of demons. It's just a way of diluting what the true gospel is, like we're somehow missing something, you know. And Paul's like, no, the, we, we, the church that God has, his bride, you know, that he is bringing the gospel through in Jesus, that is the truth. And that's not moving and not changing. And the world needs to, you know, the world needs to change. And that's why we're here, right? Mm-hmm. The church is here so that we we can bring a gospel into a world so that we can change, you know, and bring many, many sinners to, to, to the knowledge of faith through Jesus Christ. And that is the way, you know, the truth and the life is Jesus. It was, you know, said about himself. And so now it's such a good, you know, it's so important for us to realize that. And, um... You know, as we move on just through those verses, um, what is that verse two, you know, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared? What, what, yeah. is, what is Paul talking about there? So like a conscience, obviously, this is like a barometer that God has put in with, with human beings. Obviously, it works in some way together with the Holy Spirit to say like we know when we've done something that's wrong and we know when we've you know, we feel bad about lying. But what happens is that if you go over time, there's another place was talked about in Ephesians where it talks about uh, a calloused heart. And essentially the idea is like, what? how do the calluses and searing work? Well, if you ever seared a steak, right? It starts out, it's all like red and fleshy. But if you sear it, what happens? That part becomes hard. 
and unfeeling, right? It no longer, if you poke it, it doesn't bleed. And, and I think this is exactly what's being described here. What happens is that if you do some sort of sin over and over, unrepentantly, it's like it sears your heart. No longer does it hurt anymore. You don't feel that sense of conviction. It's not that the Holy Spirit isn't convicting you. It's that you just don't feel it anymore. You've become hardened, desensitized to it. That's a dangerous place to be, yeah. right? Like Hebrews uh, chapter 4, it says, if you hear the Lord's voice calling you today, do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness. That's one of the mm -hmm. most dangerous things you can do is to harden your heart when God speaks because you end up with a seared conscience or a calloused heart that no longer feels even though the Lord's speaking to you. Yeah, no, that's an important, important point. You know, just, you know, anecdotally, you just, you meet so many people like, well, I'll take care of that part of my life. I need to live, you know, I just want to see what the world has to offer. I've heard this so many times. And when that time comes, then I will turn to the Lord or I will reconcile with God or any. But, you know, it's just right there. If your heart is seared, will you even desire to turn to God at some point? And that's an, you know, that's an important lesson for, for, for us. And, and liars whose consciousness, so he's talking about people that are speaking into the church yeah. who really don't even care anymore that they are not speaking the truth. Right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Because remember, the setup in this church, I think this is really important to reiterate, and I've done mm -hmm. it a few times, is that remember that the church was organized in a different way than churches tend to be organized a lot today, which is where um, out of necessity, rather than having large gatherings in which one pastor would teach, what they did is that they had many, many gatherings spread throughout the city in which elders would teach. And so they had a lot of elders and the job of those elders was to lead those, you know, little communities that would generally meet in homes and they would do church, you know? Um, and so some of those guys, I mean, imagine Timothy's job is to kind of like make sure all these guys are teaching the right things. And some of them are not, and they don't want to stop. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what he's addressing here. Yeah. And then we moved on just to, you know, you, you did talk a little bit about verse three, which is kind of connected to verse four. And it says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if, is, it, if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Yeah. So let's just dive into that a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's uh, pretty clear what's being talked about here is actually this is tied to what he says in verse 3 about requiring abstinence from foods created by God to be received with thanksgiving. Most likely what this is referring to is that, you know, we've talked about the legalism thing. And we've talked about how they were getting into like the genealogies. There was a lot of weird stuff being taught in different pockets of the Ephesian church, but it seems that one of them was that they were requiring like the, the um, people to follow the law of Moses, the dietary laws, which like read about in Acts chapter 10 and 11, that God had told Peter, hey, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. There's a lot going on there that I don't have too much time to get into, but I'll try and summarize quickly. Essentially, that part of the law of Moses had to do with ceremonial purity, as did other parts, right? So there's three main categories of laws within the 613 laws in the laws of Moses. They are ceremonial, having to do with purity before God. Then you've got your civil, having to do with the way that society is ordered as a theocracy with God as its leader. And then you had moral laws. Now, moral laws don't change because they're tied to the character of God. Mm 
Uh, civil laws, of course, depends on living in that theocratic system. There's a big conflict during the time of Jesus because you had the Pharisees who wanted to continue living out the civil laws, and yet they're under the Roman authority. It was a really big, they were really, you know, consternation for these guys. And then you've got the um, ceremonial laws. And this is what the book of Hebrews is all about, is how Jesus is the fulfiller of the ceremonial laws of the law of Moses. Um, but this is another one, which had to do with food. And so essentially saying that since in Jesus, the we have been cleansed before God, therefore, right, things like the foods and things like that, they were now available to be eaten by those who, he says, having knowledge and, you know, praying for them with thanksgiving, they're sanctified through prayer. So this is referring to praying for food, but the food that was in question specifically were the foods that are forbidden in the law of Moses, would be like pork, lobster, etc. There are certain people saying that you still had to keep these dietary laws, which is a, a recurring theme throughout we see in other New Testament churches, like in the church in Galatia and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, so, so that's most likely what this is referring to. But this is also where we get the idea of praying before we eat. Praying before we eat, yeah. No. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's, again, another a good point, point to make, make that. Um, and this is something that, as you pointed out with the Galatians as well, this is something really hasn't... You know, there's a greater principle here, I guess, you know, for the, for the church and something we've... We don't seem to overcome, I guess, is when we, we lay out things that are not important, almost like a workspace type of, of like, and a maturity. We, we gauge people's maturity by what they leave out, which kind of brings out back to the whole idea of asceticism, as you talked about at the beginning. It's like uh, that whole idea is like, if I don't do this or do this, then my maturity or or this makes me more holy or, uh, which is nothing about what the gospel is all right. about, which is kind of, you know, seems what Paul is trying to point out. Keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, and, and I will say this, in the next section, so mm -hmm. stay tuned, yeah. people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, In the next section, Paul's going to say, but because we have this hope in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, therefore we strive all the more, right, to make sure that we are, you know, um, living in a way that that doesn't put a barrier up for the gospel in a way that really honors God. And so he is saying, look, there is a place for denying yourself and for not doing things even though you could do them, but it's not to justify yourself before right. God. It's from the place of being justified. Yeah, because doesn't Paul say that I can do all things, but not all things are helpful? Yeah. You know, and so that's a, you know, an, you know even a, a greater principle that kind of, you know, covers this over as well. So, well, that's a good thought. As we head into next week, you're going to catch up as we, we head into the second part of verse 4, starting at chapter 4 in verse 6. So make sure you join us next uh, next week for, for our sermon, whitefieldschurch.com. Remember the app. And you'll be able to watch it on the app as well. And we've got a Bible app in there and everything like that. Hopefully we'll stick that in the bottom as a link for you. But uh, Sunday morning, if we see you or next, next time on Sermon Extra. And it's good to have you with us. God bless.